Uh, last week, we launched into our new series in the letter uh, that Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, the, the, the first letter to the Thessalonians. Uh, it's a letter sent, um, I, and I will say it's a letter by Paul. Um, the, the very first four words will let, let us see that there's more than Paul writing this letter. It is Paul, Silas, and Timothy, although most assume that the, the vast chunk of what is written here is by Paul. Indeed, he makes it clear that he writes some of it with his own hand. And so Paul is, is, is writing this letter to the church, uh, and it's a church that he certainly he and Silas helped to establish in Thessalonica. And they were driven out from that city fairly quickly, only after a couple of weeks of being there. And they, therefore, they had to leave this group of young believers, young Christians in the faith, uh, and they, they had to leave. And so very quickly, in fact, there's good, good evidence to suggest that this First Thessalonians was probably Paul's first letter written. He, he writes it almost as soon as he gets to Athens um, and, and to, so that he can touch base with the church. Um, sorry, Athens and Corinth, sorry. And so he makes contact with this church again to encourage them in the faith, this young faith that they have. And, and there's many themes that come through this great letter. And indeed, if you combine both letters, uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful set of reading to do. But within these five chapters of the first letter, uh, we see one of the major themes come to the fore of the, the second coming of Christ. It's the reality that Jesus, the, the one who lived and died and rose again and ascended, will return. Uh, he has promised it. It will happen, and he will come to take his people uh, into his eternal kingdom, and he will come as well to bring judgment on those who have rejected him. And so he will come. The second coming of Jesus is coming. And so it is a glorious day for those who follow Jesus, for those who find who are in Christ. And so Paul and his team write this letter to the Thessalonians. And as they do so, they're quick to take these first hearers and readers of this letter and lift their gaze from the current circumstances which were difficult for the Thessalonians and help them to see what is coming, the secure future that is theirs in Christ. And so in essence, Paul and the others say to this young church, Look to the future that you can be sure of, you can, you can bank on, because things seem difficult now and you need to endure, and to help you to endure, we need to keep our eyes focused on what is secure in the, in the future. And we know that things were difficult for the Thessalonians. I mean, Paul and his team had been driven from this place, leaving this, young group, of, this group of young Christians there, and there seems to be within the city quite a group of people against the gospel. And yet here was this group of believers seeking to share the gospel in that city, in that setting, and live in the light of what Christ had taught them and continue to do so. And so for the Thessalonians, trials were, were common. Suffering was a real, a genuine reality, daily reality for these believers. And therefore to have their hearts and their minds reminded of their eternal home, of their eternal secure future in the midst of temporary difficulty, that was going to be really key. However, what's also uh, very clear through this letter is that this group of Christians are not to be so focused on the future that they lose touch with reality. They lose touch with the daily life that they are living. And so scattered throughout these five chapters, and particularly chapters four and five, we see teaching and instruction on the nitty-gritty day-to-day reality of living the faith in Christ that he calls us to. And therefore, that's why in this letter, we're, we're going to call this series Double Vision. It's to live with uh, an assurance in the present with confidence in the future. So we live in the present with a confidence in the future. And so it's focusing on both things at the same time. 
this is, a, this is a simultaneous reality that is possible for Christians, that we live faithfully present in the future, in the present, yes, and we are encouraged and inspired and equipped to live that faithful life because of what we know to be coming. And so we can live with double vision. That certainly seems to be one of the things that, that God is teaching the church at Thessalonica. I believe he's still teaching through his eternal word to us today. And so we see right from the outset that, that Paul and his companions, uh, they begin this letter by commending the Thessalonians. And they commend them through this first chapter. And it's going to be the first chapter that we focus on this morning. And so they, they commend them throughout this first chapter because of all that they have seen and heard about their present faith. And so they, they know that, that their faith of the Thessalonian Christians is genuine. And they com- Paul and, the, and Silas and Timothy commend them for their very clear, genuine faith. And they can know that, as we'll see later, they can know that because of what they know God has done among them. And they can know of how these people are living for God now in the midst of everything that he's done. God has saved them miraculously, graciously, mercifully. He has saved them from sin and their lives are now showing a very genuine turning to him uh, and in response to everything that he's done. And so we have this uh, throughout the first chapter. Certainly there's two main things that that I think we see. First of all, we, we recognize that the faith that the Thessalonian Christians have is visible. It is lived out. It is not private. It is very evident that they, their faith has transformed their lives. And therefore, in light of that, it seems that Paul is wanting to assure them, yes, you can be confident in the faith that you have. God has saved you. And therefore, because of everything he has done for you and because of how you are living for him, you can be confident in the faith that you have. So we see this two-pronged attack, a two-pronged theme throughout this first chapter, the the visible faith of the Thessalonians and how that visible faith can indeed be confident faith because of everything God has done and because of how the people are living in response to it. And so we're going to read our way through the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians and see these themes come to the fore. Um, But just as we begin, and I know we looked at the the introduction a little bit last week, but let me just uh, look at it again. So Paul, and uh, let's read verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they're the ones sending the letter to the church of the Thessalonians. Those are the ones receiving the letter in the first place. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. And perhaps as you find yourself reading through some of these New Testament letters, the introductions might be skipped over at times. We skim through them and get to the real meat. But actually what we see here in this first verse is very deep theology in the midst of how Paul introduces this letter to the church. So he says to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a significant marker of their identity. As we saw last week, Thessalonica was a city loyal to Caesar. It was the Roman capital of Macedonia. And so for this group of Christians to claim allegiance to Jesus meant they had to turn from what their whole city was encouraging them to do, this loyalty and allegiance to Caesar. And they say, no, Jesus is Lord, and therefore we will serve him. And so Paul's rooting them. This is who you are. The church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw last week as well how the group that met as the Christian church in Thessalonica was a mixed group. You can read that back in Acts 17. Yet what is uniting them 
is not a shared hobby. It's not a new interest. It's not a new way to spend time together at the weekend. No, it is the reality that they are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ has united them together. That is who they are. And therefore they can live visible, confident faith, knowing who they are and whose they are and the gospel that has saved them. And so even though we may, as we read them, we may skip over some of these introductions to the letter, they they teach us key things. And indeed, these are themes that will continue throughout the letter. And he finishes that greeting with grace and peace to you. Again, we might, I don't know how you sign off an email or a text message. I think there's much more going on here than that. This is not just a salutation. It is a declaration. You are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ because grace has been given to you. And you have peace, peace in the wider biblical sense of shalom, this sense of peace with one another because you are united in Christ, but but primarily peace with God, the God who has saved you, because you are now in him as Jesus, as your Lord and Savior. And so even in the introduction, we see deep things, lessons that we can learn. Uh, And and so as we see that in the introduction, we, we will see some of those themes piling on through as we work our way through this wonderful letter but moving on we do begin to see the theme of the visible faith of the Thessalonians coming to the fore if we um if we look at verse if we look at verse uh, two and three just for now first Thessalonians two and three we always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers we remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith your labor prompted by love and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's much that we could unpack here about the way that Paul, Silas, and Timothy pray for this church, but at the minute and for this morning, let's just focus on what they give thanks for in their prayer. There's three main things, their work, their labor, and their endurance. But, but, but these are not just fruits of the Thessalonians' ability or aptitude in and of themselves. These are outworkings of what God has done in the hearts of the Thessalonians. We give thanks to God for your work, which is a product of your faith. We give thanks to God for all of your labor, which is prompted by love. And we give thanks for the endurance that you're showing in the midst of severe trial, but that is because of the hope that you have. And so this work produced by faith, clearly what the Thessalonians believe in, what they trust in, gives rise to action. There's, a, there's an outflowing, there's a production of their faith and that is shown in their work. And of course, as we read through the rest of the, the scriptures given to us, we know that that's the way it should be. Just two verses to pick up on. James 2.17 says, Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. And then after a wonderful uh, kind of declaration of all that Christ has done for us and how it is by grace we have been saved in Ephesians 2, then we read, For we are God's workmanship, his handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works for him that he prepared in advance for us to do. And so faith, genuine faith in Jesus Christ leads to action. It must. And so good, godly work actions, it is a product of their faith. And so we see this pattern often, even in the rest of Paul's letters. This letter is the same, but in a lot of Paul's writing, you can see this pattern of faith and action. 
Very often Paul's letters, the first half of which will be a declaration of the faith of the people receiving or teaching about that faith, a wonderful uh, unpacking and, and, and celebration of all that who God is in Jesus Christ. And then the second half of that letter will shift to a, therefore, this is how you live. It's the reality that what we believe is impacted or impacts how we live. It must. And so the work of this Thessalonian church is produced by faith. But, but that work is no, we don't get any sense here that this is a begrudging adherence to rules or a, a legalistic list of do's and don'ts. This new life that is being lived, the work that is being produced by faith, it is a labor that's prompted by love. For the Thessalonians and indeed for those who follow Jesus today, it is, the, it is love for God that prompts our surrender to him recognizing who he is, his holiness, his majesty, as we've been singing about this morning, who he is and the fact that he loves us. Therefore, we love him and and in response, and that is played out by our surrender to him. And so it's our love for God that prompts our obedience and our surrender to him. Indeed, as we think wider than that, it's our love for our neighbor that prompts our generosity. It's our love for one another that prompts our sacrificial service for one another. It's our love for the gospel and our love for those who need to hear it that, that compels us to share that with others. It's our labor prompted by love. And again, that is not a love that we conjure up. All the love that we can show to others, all the Christian love that we can show to others is only because we have first been loved. We love because he first loved us. And so because and in response to the amazing love that we have been shown, we love. And that love is active. It is noticeable. It is visible. It looks like labor, but it's prompted by love. Work produced by faith, labor prompted by love. And the final of this triad is through all things we can endure, inspired by hope. And this eternal, unshakable hope that has been secured for us in Christ means that for those who follow Christ can endure in that following because of the hope that we have. Paul will later write to the church that met in Rome, in Romans 8, 31 to 37, if God is for us, who can be against us? He He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And so we read these verses. Maybe we stick them on a wall and they look quite cute. These verses, for the first hearers, we must remember that this this is not a, a theoretical list that Paul writes. No, this first church was experiencing hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. And haven't we heard this morning our brothers and sisters around the world continue in that setting? We might not in our place and setting here, but the truth is no less real. What shall separate us from the love of God? Nothing. Because we have hope, an unshakable hope. And so we can endure the present because of where we know God is bringing us to in the future. And so the hope is inspired, or the endurance is inspired by hope. Work produced by faith, labor prompted by love, endurance inspired by hope. In summary, what we can see is belief in Jesus Christ has transformed the lives of the Thessalonians. 
that their whole lives are different because they trust Jesus. Their whole life is indeed, their whole faith is indeed visible. Alistair Begg has made this uh, really helpful. As he, I, I've, I got this book for Christmas and I've read the first chapter and I've underlined the vast majority of it. Um, but I just wanted to share something. It's a book about the Sermon on the Plain that Jesus delivers in Luke's Gospel and, and, and Alistair Begg just works his way through. But in the introduction, he just sets up the reality that following Jesus means a transformed life. And let me read what he says. And there's a couple of quotes that will appear on the screen. What we shall hear Jesus saying to us is radical. How faith in him compels and equips us to live out a new lifestyle that is often countercultural and counterintuitive. This makes the Sermon on the Plain not only an invitation but a challenge. The hallmarks and priority of Jesus' kingdom are different from this world's and so its citizens will be different too. Jesus' call is deep and it is wide and it calls us to turn everything we naturally think upside down. Here we shall discover what the marks of a genuine Christian are No one who is truly a member of Jesus' kingdom is left unchanged by that membership. Jesus says, I want you to be happy about different things from what other people are happy about and sad about things that other people don't routinely get sad about. I want you to have as your ambition something that the world regards as weak and ineffectual. I want you to treat people in a way that makes no sense to them and at times not much sense to you. I want you to have a different way of evaluating your decisions and your reactions and your life. I want you to be different, Jesus says. And the reason is, he has done everything we needed to save us from sin and welcome us into his eternal presence. And so our life is now an offering for him. And as we then seek to reflect him to the world around us, our lives are different. They look different to our neighbors and friends who don't trust in Jesus yet. And that line in the middle of that quote there, no one who is truly a member of Jesus' kingdom is left unchanged by, thy mem- by that membership. That, that's the example we see here in the, in the lives of the Thessalonians. And it's this level of visible faith that Paul commends, he prays for, that these three guys, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, thank God for these characteristics that they know of and see in the lives of the Thessalonians. And now, it is that visible faith that serves as the foundation of what Paul will go on to say throughout the rest of the chapter. See, it's, be, it's because of the mountain of evidence that Paul has seen and heard of about the faith of the Thessalonians that he can be confident in that faith. He, he knows that they are truly saved people. And so he writes to encourage them with that reality. They can be assured of all of that God has done for them. And therefore, their visible faith can be a confident faith. And Paul's confidence in the faith of the Thessalonians is based on at least two things that he knows and has seen regarding them. Firstly, he knows and has seen what God, only God can do. He knows that God has saved and only God can save. We'll unpack that from verse 4 and 5. And then finally, we'll finish by thinking, and it, it overlaps with the idea of visible faith. But because of the life that he knows and has heard of the Thessalonian Christians and how they have responded to what only God can do, then he can be confident that they are indeed truly following Jesus. Therefore, he writes to encourage them, to spur them on, to keep going, keep living that confident living, that confident life. And so firstly, let's think about well, what, what is it that only God can do? And so let's read together verses four and five. We've just had that wonderful prayer and then, for we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you 
Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. I find it fascinating that verse 4 starts with four. This is, this is a, a continuation of the theme that, and the flow of thought that has been going before. So Paul and his, and his friends have prayed this wonderful prayer. And the reason they can pray, giving thanks for their work produced by faith, their labor prompted by love, their endurance inspired by hope. The reason they can pray all that is because we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. You are God's people. And so we give thanks for all that he is doing among you. And so God has rescued the Thessalonian Christians. He's called them into his family. And that gives Paul confidence. That's not something that they had control over. They could respond to, yes, but God has chosen them. God has loved them with an enduring love. And how did that happen? How did the good news of Jesus come to Thessalonica? How did they respond? Well, it comes by God's word and God's power. We see in verse 5, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power. And it had to come by words. We looked at that last week in Acts 17, when Paul and Silas are in Thessalonica, they go to the synagogue and they reason with the people there. Indeed, we saw last week how they reasoned, they explained, they proved, they proclaimed that Jesus is the Messiah. And so the message had to come by words. Of course it did. Reminds us, doesn't it, of Romans 10, 14 and 15? How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can, they, how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. And so Paul and Silas brought the good news to the Thessalonians. And many believed. And so the gospel message came by words. But Paul is quick to say, not simply with words, but also with power, the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You see, this helps us to recognize, and, and many of us may know this, but it is always good for us to be reminded of that it is the spiritual work that only God can do that brings new life. Words must come. Yes, people must hear the message, but it is God by his spirit that captures people's hearts that opens blind spiritual eyes, that helps them to see the beauty of the gospel and their need for salvation. We might, as God's people, as God's messengers, bring that message. Yes, absolutely. But we, as mere human beings, we cannot save someone's soul. We can let them know the urgency with which they must turn to Christ. We can let them see the joy that Christ has made in our life as we have responded to him. Yes, but it is only God who can bring new life. And so only God can save. And Paul is confident that the Thessalonians are loved by God, chosen by him. His word and his power came. And that is evidence of their, of their salvation. And so Paul shows that the Thessalonians can be confident, but they can have a confident faith because of what only God can do. God loved them. He chose them. He spoke his message to them. He came with spiritual power to rescue them. And so they can be confident based on what only God can do. And secondly then, Paul is confident based on what the people have done. And we see this in verses 6 through to verse 10. It's in this language of imitation. Uh, and as I say, there's a lot of this uh, overlaps with what we've thought about in terms of the visible faith. But let's read verses 6 to verse 10. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering, 
with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. And, and this all begins with verse 6, where you became imitators of us and of the Lord. And Paul has used that language of imitation before. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, he says, for my, follow my example as I follow Christ. And here we see that that imitation path continuing paul says follow me as i follow christ then he says to the to the thessalonians follow me and you know and you are now imitators of us so the thessalonian christians are now following the example of paul other churches then hear of what god is doing among the thessalonian christians and follow their example and god's message rings out and so we see how the, this wonderful humble lifestyle of, of being willing to be held up as an example to be followed because we follow Christ. And, and let's notice the, the example of the Thessalonians. What, what do they do that is commended here? You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In, in what sense? Well, I think there's at least four, four things that we can pick up. You became imitators of us and of the Lord in verse 6. For you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering. And so they welcomed the message. It's the first thing they're commended for. Then we see in verse 8 that they trusted God through everything because their faith became known everywhere. They, in verse 9, they turn to God from idols. And in verse 10, they wait for the Son to return. They wait for Jesus. And so they welcome the message. They trust in God through everything. They turn to God from idols and they wait for Jesus to come again. So what's clear is the people here have taken real action. They have done something in response to what God has done in them. He has saved them and they've in turn devoted themselves to him. And Paul commends them for it. And yes, there's a sense in which this is a wonderful example for us to, to, to see. But we must make sure that, that we don't hold the Thessalonians up more highly than they deserve. Because what's clear is that every point that they are commended for here is connected back to God and his glory. It's, it's all about Jesus. And so they, they welcome the message even in the midst of severe suffering. That's the first thing they're commended for. And how are they able to do that? With the joy given by the Holy Spirit, the end of verse 6 says. And so even their welcoming of the message was a spiritual gift. They trusted in the Lord through everything. Well, that's because their faith became known everywhere. And so the reputation is strong. Yes, people hear about what is going on in the Thessalonian church. Wonderful. But it's their faith in God has become known. It's not how wonderful they are as a, as a group of people. It's how they trust in God. And so God's fame is extended. It's the Lord's message that rings out. And in verse 9, they turn to God from idols. And it's interesting that it's noted that they turn from, to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And the idea is the living and true God is set up in comparison to the idols that have been turned from because the idols are dead and false, but the living and true God. And so again, they're commended for this change. They're commended for their repentance. They're commended for their faithful following, but it's a celebration of God. He is the true and living one. Of course, he is worthy to be followed. 
And they do all of that waiting for Jesus to come again. Jesus, the one who rescues us from the coming wrath. You see, all of this, all of the faith that has been commended and celebrated in this chapter, it is all possible because Jesus has saved them from the coming wrath. This is not a celebration of the Thessalonian church for their own benefit. It's a celebration of what God has done in the Thessalonian church for God's glory. And so it is all, even as they take, a, a, take faith-filled action in response to all of God's goodness, it is a celebration of God and all that he has done among his people. That doesn't demean what the Thessalonians have done. It just puts the glory in the right place. So it is right. The Thessalonians still set us a good example of how to turn to God from idols, how to wait patiently for the coming of Christ, how they should live and how we should live faithfully in the midst of a culture and a context that doesn't share our love for Jesus. That's a good example for us to follow. But the glory goes to God because of what he has done in the Thessalonian church, what he is doing among us and how he will come again in glory. You see, everything that they have done, their visible faith that they live out and the confidence that they can have in their faith is, is rooted, it is founded in verse four. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. We can have faith because God has loved us. We can know him because he sent his son to take away our sin. We can live a life for him that glorifies him now because he sends his spirit to those who believe. And so it's a key message for us who follow Jesus today. We realize that we have, we have much room to grow in our Christian maturity. But particularly there are, there are some of us who, who think we have so far to go, surely God's given up on us by now. Surely, could he even have loved us in the first place? I mean, look at the mess we've made of things again. And so many of us question, I can't, am I really saved? Does God really love me? Has he really chosen me? And those can be crippling questions. But we find, and what we're guided to here, is that the basis of any confidence we have in our salvation is in what God has done. God loved us. Not when we were acceptable to him. He loved us, continues to love us. And so he sent his son to die for us while we were still sinners. And so there's no doubting God's love for us. If we have turned in repentance and in faith to Jesus Christ, as is written here in verse 10, turned to God from idols. If we have bowed the knee before him and claimed him as Lord and Savior, he has chosen us. He has chosen us. It's not based on the strength of my grip to hold on to him. Praise the Lord. He holds us. As we often sing, he will hold me fast. And so it's God who loves. It's God who chooses. It's God who gives his spirit. It's God who's given us the life of Christ as our model. It's God who gives us unwavering and eternal joy through life's trials. It's God who draws us into his family so that we can encourage one another. It is God, the true and living God who is worthy of our worship. It's God who sent Jesus. It's God who gives faith. It's God who opens our eyes that we're blind to our need of him until he showed us 
our need for him and all that we needed to be saved. So our salvation requires complete repentance, yes. Not denying that, not questioning that at all. Our lives must change. But they change and are transformed by God in response to everything God has done and the fullness of his salvation offer. See, God is the only one who can save. He's the only one who gives his spirit to empower us to live a life that glorifies him. And therefore, dear brothers and sisters, loved by God, if you have claimed him as your Lord and Savior, allow your faith in him to be visible. Allow him to work in your life and transform your heart and your affections so that you are then living your life displaying a work that's produced by faith, labor that's prompted by love, and endurance that's inspired by hope because of everything that he has done in and for you. And and let's recognize we can do this. We can live a faithful life to Jesus. Not because we've got this discipleship thing cracked, but because he is graciously good. He has saved. He enables And therefore, his glory is what we seek. And so let's, may he continue to work in us to develop that that visible faith. May we live a life that glorifies him, that points others to him, that speaks of him boldly and proclaimingly in a world that watches on. And we can do that confident that if we've turned to Christ as our savior, that he has saved us. He's the only one who can. And therefore, he equips us for him. So may we live a life of confident faith in him and a faith that is visible to the world around us. And we pray that it will all be for the glory of his name, his good unending name. Let's let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it endures. We thank you that it is eternal. We thank you that through your word, you continue to speak and lead and teach us, and rebuke us, and correct us, and train us in righteousness. And so we thank you, Father, for the glory that we can see in your word. And Lord, we recognize, Father, that for those of us who have repented of our sin and turned to you as our Savior, we thank you, Father, for the work that only you could do, only you could take away our sin. And so we thank you that you have done that. And we pray, Lord, that our lives would reflect the gratitude and the wonder and the obedience that must come as a result of that faith. And so may you equip us, Father, to live a visible life that glorifies you, a visible faith that others can see you at work in our lives. And Lord, I pray, Father, for for those of us who who sometimes struggle with that sense of security and, and assurance that you have indeed saved us. Lord, thank you that you have done what only you can do. And Lord, we pray that you would increase your fruit, the fruit of your work in us, the fruit of our repentance in our hearts and lives. Not for our own benefit, Father, but so that you would be glorified and that we would continue to live faithfully in the light of all that you've given us. Equip us, Father, empower us, we pray, and be glorified in all that we do. It's in your wonderful name we pray. Amen.